Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, the title of my sermon today is Dungeons and Dragons. I'm going to read a little bit of this to get us started. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment when he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The, fam the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. That would be the equivalent of three and a half years. Now once again, we're faced with a variety of opinions on the interpretation of this scripture. It's just not worth our time to go into all of the interpretations and try and build a defense of any one of them. I'm going to give you loosely uh, the direction we're going today with this because regardless of what the actual interpretation is, which we don't know, there are things that we can learn from this passage. There's things we can learn about uh, the dragon and who that dragon is and what his occupation is, what he is busy doing. The woman has, for all the interpre possible interpretations of this, probably most popularly and most widely accepted is the woman represents Israel. I think most scholars would come to a consensus on that. There's a few others that think that actually refers to Mary giving birth to Jesus. There's a diverse opinions about the man-child. One of the most popular opinions is that it, this is Jesus Christ, and one of the telltale indicators of that is whoever this child is rules all the nations with an iron scepter, and that certainly sounds like the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. Uh, others less popular believe that it's the church because the church is suddenly caught up. That's not a real popular interpretation of this. Some believe that the man-child is the uh, Jews who in the last days will find their way to God uh, and they will be converted. They will find their, their uh, 
experience with Jesus Christ except him during this tribulation time and they will be caught up before they can be devoured by the devil. I think I'm probably going to contrary to what I have always taught and believed that I, I always felt the man child was related to the 144,000 that were caught up but contrary to that I'm actually going to focus on this as maybe being a reference to Jesus Christ. I had always felt like everything in there was yet future but hey, in order to make this Christ there would be a flashback to kind of set up the scenario of how could Israel give the birth to Jesus because obviously Israel produced the Messiah. That's not a point that I really care to debate or argue. It's, it's not important to me. But I do think that we do have Israel bringing forth an important person here. And we have a dragon that most definitely is trying to cause some problems. Once again, if we have a, a pretty strong consensus on Israel being the woman, then we also have a very strong consensus on the dragon being the devil. And there's a lot of detail to this that prophecy teachers love to expound on with the, the, devon, uh, the, the, the dragon having a, uh, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on its head and relating that to, to all the empires that have ever oppressed Israel. And, and I'm, I'm very, very well acquainted with those theories uh, starting with Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then uh, uh, revised Rome, revived Greece and revised, revised Rome, and I understand all those in the heads and how it relates to Daniel, but I'm not going there either because that's boring. I want to get down to something more interesting that relates to us, that ministers to us today. So taking a broader look at this, the birth of the man-child, quite obviously, uh, has the interest of the dragon, Satan. His tail drawing a third part of the stars, I think most scholars agree that that represents that whenever Satan fell in the very beginning, he took a lot of angels with him. Now, for those of you that are not aware of how this really happened, let me just briefly tell you that when God originally created the angels, one of them got the big idea that he could start a coup and take over God. And he convinced about a third of the angels, if, if we'll all rise up together, we, the created beings, can actually take over the creator. Uh, it's, it's a foolish plan to start with. They tried, they failed. So uh, there's a lot of fallen angels. That's represented by the great dragon that has a tail that draws a third part of the stars or the angels and it casts them down. So he was responsible for the fall, the failure of a third of the population of the angels in heaven. In a futuristic setting, uh, he will continue to harass the saints. If the man-child is Jesus Christ in this, then we can certainly understand how the devil might be depicted as waiting for that opportunity to destroy Jesus when he was born, but Jesus was resurrected and went to heaven, and the devil did not have a chance to destroy him at that time. So all those things at least bear some similarity, and they certainly are possible. 
But the first thing is, is just recognizing that Satan at some point was cast out of heaven. Once again, scholars are going to have a variety of opinions on exactly when he is cast out of heaven. Now, he did uh, try to lead a rebellion against God, and he failed at that, but he was not denied access to heaven yet. You go back to the book of Job, and we see there that the devil went before God. He had access to the courts. He went before God. He said, I've got an idea. Let's run an experiment. He said, I, I think that uh, I can make Job deny you, give up his faith, if, I, if you'll just let me put the pressure on him a little bit. And God said, well, let's try it and see. You can, you can do anything you want to him except you can't kill him. All the other stops were pulled out. And, of course, you know the story of Job. I don't have to go over that in detail. Uh, the man lost everything. And Satan was really pressing on him to deny God. And, of course, all the friends that came around, uh, they were counseling Job. You must have done something wrong to make God this mad. And uh, all along, Job was struggling to figure out what this is all about because he didn't know why this was happening to him. He didn't have a Bible to go to, to study. Uh, he was just trying to figure out, why me? So we see in that story that Satan had access to heaven. We see in the book of Isaiah as well that uh, the priest caught a vision and in that vision, Satan was there to harass and to harangue. And so Isaiah and Job both show that uh, Satan had access to heaven. At some point, he was denied further access to heaven. That's what it means when it's talking about the dragon being cast out of heaven. So you have a couple of choices here. Uh, when did Satan, was Satan denied further access to heaven to strike deals with God and harass us with God's permission? Well, it, it was either at the resurrection of Jesus Christ or at the, uh, it'll be at the return of Christ, one of the two. So we submit to you, so we can just get through this part where I'm just setting this up, that at the time when Jesus was crucified and rose from the grave, that that was the point at which Satan was denied any further access to the courts of heaven. He can no longer go before God and strike any of these deals and run any of these tests with God's permission. He has now been denied access. And one of the reasons that I suggest it was at the time whenever Jesus rose from the grave is because in this chapter, there's a loud voice from heaven that says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. At some point, at this point, now has come salvation. Well, when did salvation come? Salvation's not going to come in the future. Salvation came when Jesus successfully rose from the grave. So if this is picturing the man-child as Jesus, if this is picturing the 
serpent ready to devour the man-child, if this is picturing the man-child being caught up, uh, resurrected, and if that's the point at which salvation comes and the kingdom is first established, and, and that's theologically, that's accurate. We believe that the kingdom of God is here, it's now, but it's not yet. So that's theologically, if you want to understand how theologians talk about the kingdom of God, uh, already is, but not yet. It's kind of confusing, but that's the way they look at it because it has been established, but it's still parts of it are yet to come. So the kingdom has been established, salvation has come, and at simultaneously, the accuser has been tossed out of heaven. Now here's where I want to stop for just a minute and talk a little bit about the fact that the dragon, the devil, uh, is our enemy, he is our opposition, and he is involved in this spiritual warfare against us. There are references to heavenly battles in the Bible that coincide with earthly battles. And most famously, we go back to the book of Daniel. And you remember Daniel praying and Michael the archangel finally having a breakthrough and coming. So I would have been here earlier, but I was detained by some spiritual forces that were fighting against me, the uh, ruler of Persia. And so there we see that the prayers of a righteous man, the prayers of Daniel, were connected to this heavenly spiritual battle going on between Michael and his archangels, he, he, Mike, Michael and his angels, uh, and and uh, Satan or wicked angels who are opposing them. We see these spiritual forces that are locked in battle, coinciding with the prayers of earthly saints. And I preached about that just a couple of weeks ago, so I won't go any deeper into that, no need to. But we hear a lot about spiritual warfare today. And we have a lot of funny ideas about spiritual warfare. So I've gone through all this other to set this up to get you to this point where I say, now you can listen to me. <laughs> now pay attention. There's a lot of things that goes on with <clears throat> what people call spiritual warfare that stems from sloppy modern-day teachings about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is real, but a lot of the things you will hear and witness and people will get into is not accurate and not true. Stubborn prayer is the driving force of spiritual warfare. Let's just make it very simple. Stubborn, consistent, unrelenting prayer is the driving force of spiritual warfare. Not formulated incantations. The heavenly battles do not direct the earthly battles. We're not down here just reflecting what's happening in the heavenlies. We are not down here responding to, well, Michael and his angels must have won that battle because we won ours. It's exactly the opposite. The heavenly battles are reflecting what we are doing here on earth. If we are praying and we are breaking through, God is watching, and that's the point at which he responds in heaven by saying, okay, they won on earth, we're winning in heaven. Now, that may sound odd to you, but if you think it the other way around, it's all automated. 
our, our prayers mean nothing, our efforts mean nothing because, well, they're going to win or they're going to lose. Why do we do anything? But it's directed by our prayers. Now, I say that to help you understand how important it is you pray. You are generating results in the heavenlies by the degree to which you are praying and fighting your battles here. It's easy to say prayer doesn't mean anything. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But that's not true. Prayer means everything. Amen. We move mountains with prayer. We have breakthroughs with prayer. This is where spiritual warfare happens, in our prayer room. We are, if there is spiritual warfare, and there is, we are the ground troops. And the ground troops is where it's at. We don't defeat Satan by rebuking him. Don't even try it. If, if you want a biblical rationale for this, the Bible says that even Michael the archangel dared not bring railing accusation against the devil when contending with the devil for the body of Moses. Dared, dared not bring railing accusation against him, but said what? Anybody know what it says? The Lord rebuke you. Even Michael the archangel did not dare say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Michael the archangel knew better. He said, the Lord rebuke you. And well, why does that matter? It matters or it wouldn't have been in the Bible. We don't defeat Satan by rebuking him. God is the only one that can rebuke him. We don't use any wisdom and whenever we slander the devil. It's very popular for preachers to get up here and call the devil a bunch of nasty names and get a lot of amens. That old snaggle-toothed serpent, that slime ball, that, and every, oh yeah, man, go, go, go get him. Yeah, yeah. God does not instruct us to do that. You are messing with something you don't have the power and authority to deal with. The Lord rebuke you. How do we do spiritual warfare? The most important way we do spiritual warfare, and this includes prayer. I'm not just saying uh, just praying, but there has to be some action to your prayers. The way we do the best spiritual warfare, the most effective spiritual warfare is evangelism because it's all about winning souls. It's all about who gets the most souls at the end, God or Satan. And we are the intermediaries here. We're, we're the ones in between that are making it happen in winning the souls for God. So every time we win a soul, we drive the spiritual forces back. We give a black eye, so to speak, to the powers of hell. But if we are not evangelizing, we're not doing spiritual warfare. We can pray all we want, but until we start winning souls to the Lord, we are not storming the gates of hell. You remember the words of Jesus. Upon this rock, I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, just think about it. <clears throat> if you're thinking in terms of these, these armies that are lined up one against the other, God's army, Satan's army, when's the last time you ever saw an army carrying their gates with them? They don't take their gates with them. Their gates are back there protecting their home base. So whenever Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail, you should not have this picture in mind that Satan's army is carrying these gates around, <laughs> attacking you with gates. We're talking about hell's territory that they have claimed and they've gated off. And they say, no entrance, no admission, nobody gets in here. This is our territory, and they've got souls locked up. And Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. The church is the arm of evangelism. The church is the one that has received that command from God that you will go into all the world, preach the gospel, receive that great commission to make disciples of all nations. In order to do that, you have to bust through the gates of hell to get to the people that need the message. The gates of hell shall not prevail. In other words, when you have to take the word to the hard parts of the, uh, of the world, you have to break through the gates of hell. They will not stand because we have been given the power to break through the gates. We defeat Satan by prayer. We defeat him by the word of our testimony. That's the declaration of the gospel. And we defeat Satan by bringing the message of salvation to the lost, snatching souls out of the pathway to hell. We advance the gospel into hell's territory. God pushes back the evil forces in the heavenlies. We're not bystanders in this battle. We are not spectators in this battle. We are the participants. And then John's vision switches after he sees this vision of the dragon ready to devour the man-child and temporarily the vision switches to heaven's perspective, which it happens quite often in Revelation. We're plodding along here looking at what's happening on earth and all of a sudden we get this perspective of what's happening in heaven meanwhile. What are they seeing? What are they doing? How are they behaving? And John says suddenly in the 10th verse, Then I heard this loud voice in heaven that says, Now has come salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. The accuser of our brothers, brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. So at this, at this point, if this happened at Calvary, if this happened at the resurrection, then he no longer has access to heaven right now. He's, in other words, he, he is now here on earth, and I'll come back to that, doing his work here on earth. I'll come back to that thought in just a minute. They, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Just keep that in mind. That kind of sets the scene for where we go next. The earthly conflict continues. When the dragon saw, he'd been hurled down to earth. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. That's 
thinly veiled code for years, a time, a year, times, two years, and half a time, half a year, three and a half years, which matches the 1260 days that have already been mentioned. <coughs> Is that futuristic? Yeah, there's going to come a time whenever Israel will be pursued by the enemy. These are the ones that God is going to preserve because they are now coming to a realization they need to turn to God and God is protecting them from the pursuit of the enemy motivated and directed by Satan himself. That'll be through earthly powers, earthly forces, Antichrist, his army. And she flies into the wilderness spared there, protected by God, and from the mouth of the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent, but the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged. And he's already enraged, but now he is really angry. And he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. So she not only had a man-child, she had other offspring. And he goes off to wage war. He can't get to this Israel, but she has other children. And now he's going to go off and make trouble with them. Those who keep, and it's, it's defined as those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Now, it might be worth noting at this point that not so much in the Old Testament do we get any understanding in any teaching about what it means to have to fight against an entity called Satan? As a matter of fact, as, as I said before, Satan is only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament, in Job and in Isaiah. It's the only two places Satan's mentioned. So Jewish writings did not focus a lot on developing the theology of spiritual warfare against an entity called Satan or called loosely the devil. We obviously see Satan at work through the serpent in the Garden of Eden. We obviously see Satan's influence at work in trying to destroy Job. And then the brief mention of Satan making accusations against Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3. And, and beyond that, this concept of fighting against Satan is basically missing from the entire rest of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Jews pretty well had, had come to the conclusion that Satan was just kind of a, a metaphor for all the human tendencies and temptations and weaknesses. So, you know, we, we all uh, have a tendency to do the wrong thing, and metaphorically they said, well, it must be the devil. But they wasn't really convinced about this entity called Satan. It wasn't until we got into the New Testament, of course the New Testament not been written yet, but we, we see the records of the things that happen in what we call the New Testament. We get to Jesus where he begins to introduce this concept of you are fighting against somebody called Satan. And he began to teach on that to a greater degree than the Jews had ever understood or ever heard before. And you just think of the times that 
that Jesus had confrontations and references to Satan. Well, it starts right off whenever he, he, he is, uh, we find him as an adult, beginning his ministry, and he's in the wilderness. And who's there to tempt him? Satan. And so now we're getting a fuller picture of what it means to be wrestling against this entity called Satan as Satan tempts him. Turn this, these stones into bread. I know you're hungry. He was fasting. Of course he was hungry. And these stones, one commentator had said, were, were very smooth stones, weather-worn stones jutting from the hillside that in a sense you look at them and it looks kind of like a loaf of bread sticking out of the hillside. So Satan takes advantage of the visual here and he says, looks good, doesn't it? You have the power just to turn that into bread and eat it and be done with this fast. Now, how many of you have ever fasted and come to the realization that while you're fasting, that that's one of the things that Satan can do is to make breaking your fast so easy and convenient. You start a serious fast only to find out there's a big banquet in your honor that night. <laughs> Men, you get up, and just between you and God, I'm going to fast this entire week. And wifey puts on your favorite dish. And you get home. It, it's tough. Don't think Satan's not in there trying to mess you up. He did Jesus. Cast yourself down from this tower. The, the angels will catch you. Don't worry about it. But ultimately... And, and, and here's the one that really, you just, you've, got to, you've got to just shake your head. Satan says, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, ain't going to happen. <laughs> just ain't going to happen. That's the tempter. And we were introduced to his, his nefarious, wicked, sly ways when he tried to pull that junk on Jesus. And if he tried to put it on Jesus, he'll try to put it on you. In Matthew 16, Peter rebukes Jesus for revealing that, that uh, punishment and death were awaiting him. And Peter says, no way I'm going to let that happen to you. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter, you're out of turn, but Satan is the one motivating you. And Jesus recognized the power and the influence of Satan behind a human being and rebuked both of them. And then uh, whenever Jesus was casting out demons, uh, uh, Jews came and said, well, he must uh, cast out the devil by the power of the prince of devils, by Beelzebub. And, and so for people who weren't really sure that there was even a devil anyway, then Jesus turned around and said, now wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. A, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. How can Satan cast out Satan? It doesn't work that way. I'm, my work is not because of the power of Satan. My work is because of the power of the Father. And then we're told that the, the devil entered into Judas Iscariot and motivated him to go and betray Jesus. Uh, Paul warned the Ephesians, uh, don't give even the slightest foothold to the devil. 
And then uh, just uh, within a, a chapter or two later, after saying, don't give in a foothold to the devil, he says, put on the whole armor of God. You have to resist the devil. And then Peter chimed in on that and said, uh, Satan's like a roaring lion, constantly prowling around looking for someone to devour. So Peter and Paul and Jesus are all fleshing out this concept of an accuser, of a devil, that he's, he's working down here and he's got very sly ways that, and, and techniques. And, and for Peter to say, now here's what I want you to think of the devil as. He's like a man-eating lion. And he's prowling. And he's trying to sneak up and he's trying to catch you off guard. And he wants to eat you. Now, that sounds kind of like the kind of, uh, when, when we were children, we were always taught there was a boogeyman. Watch out for him. You know, I, I was convinced when I was little, he lived under my bed. I hated to look. I didn't want to prove that or disprove it. I just, you know, the boogeyman. But, you know, this, this is the stuff that this is made of. Peter's saying he is a ravenous lying just waiting to seize you, to devour you, to eat you. <laughs> but except we don't worry too much about that, do we? We ought to. We ought to be thoroughly concerned about it. Every one of us as adults, Satan's trying to devour you. He's trying to sneak up on you. He's trying to eat you. He's trying to destroy you. And this, you ought to be aware of that every day that you live. He hates you. He wants to ruin you. So this, our Christian theology has done much to make us much more aware of the spiritual battle that we fight against and this powerful, unscrupulous foe, James, said, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee. But we only get about half of that. Sometimes people said, just resist the devil. He'll go away. No, it says, first you've got to submit yourself to God. You can't resist the devil if you're not submitted to God. He won't pay any attention to you. It's God in you that makes him pay attention to you. Satan is cast out of heaven. Happened at the resurrection. He's cast out of heaven. He's loosed with vengeance on the earth and that is where we are today we are down here with this angry evil entity that is making all kinds of problems for us every day he doesn't take a lot of time off he doesn't take extended vacations he is consumed with destroying everyone who is created in the image of God because he hates God and he hates anything that reminds him of God. That's you. You're created in the image of God and he hates you. And one thing he can do to, to take, take revenge on getting kicked out of heaven, to take revenge on having failed in his coup, is to take God's creation and ruin and wreck and destroy them because he knows God loves them. And what he can do to get back at God is to go against those that God loves and destroy them. He thinks he is getting revenge on God by doing that. 
So we, we'd like, I'd like to think that Satan's expulsion from heaven would mark a point where he's powerless here on earth. Okay, kicked out of heaven, bound on earth, but it's not so. He got kicked out of heaven, and he's full at work here on earth. Why would God kick him out of heaven and let him continue to work here on earth? Why not binding up here? Well, they, I'm glad you asked. Here in Revelation, we see that being kicked out of heaven and working here on earth has embittered him. He is enraged, and he is intensifying his efforts to wage war on the faithful who remain here on earth while he has an opportunity to win any battles. So he's pictured in Revelation as this grotesque dragon with his minions who have plotted to destroy the Messiah before he could successfully reach Calvary and fulfill his mission. He failed in that. We see him relentlessly pursuing Israel for having brought forth the Messiah, but he loses at that. We see him turning on her other children and pursuing them, and that would be exactly what he's doing in this day and age. Even though there's a fulfillment of this in the future, it still is true that he is pursuing God's children. And we are, in a sense, if you want to just make some sort of an application, we're, a, we're in a sense, children of Israel. It was Israel that brought forth the Messiah. And we who are born of Jesus Christ are grafted in to the vine. We become a part of that. So in a sense, we are the children. And remember whenever we studied the, the churches in the book of Revelation, who were the true Jews? The true Jews are the ones who were serving Jesus, not the ones who were Jews by heritage, by blood lineage, but the ones who were serving Jesus were considered the true Jews. The Jews who by heritage were Jews, who were not serving Jesus, were called false Jews. They were Jewish by heritage, but they were false Jews because spiritually they were rejecting Jesus. So in a sense, we are the offspring of Israel. So here this dragon is pursuing and destroying who he can. So why do we have to contend with Satan? Because even though he's the cause and the source of so much of our struggles and trials, even though life would be so much easier without a tempter. We all know that. But the fact is, he is a part of the plan for our graduation into heaven. It's all a very systematic, well-organized plan of God that without a tempter, we have no way of proving our faithfulness to God. So God has allowed the tempter to continue so we can prove ourselves in our dedication and our discipline to serve him. It's the same with Adam and Eve. He didn't have to allow the tempter into the garden, but he did because he wanted to prove that Adam and Eve were able to make a choice. He wanted them to make the right choice, but they failed. So that's the reason the tempter continues here on earth. It's for your own good. Because without a tempter, how are you going to prove yourself to God? You could say, Lord, I love you so much, but without a tempter to force you to make the right choices, how do you know you really love God? The tempter's been working on you this past week, I can tell. <laughs> you know how I can tell? Because you're human. That's how I can tell. Because he's working on all of us. 
He wants you to make the wrong decisions. He wants you to have the wrong attitudes. He wants you to lose faith. He wants you to doubt. He wants you to fear. He wants you to sin. The tempter has been working on you. So give yourself a grade this morning. How have you done this week? Oh. And he's going to work on you this week. And he's going to work on you next week. And it's your job to resist that. It's your job to stand up against those temptations and to say, no, I've made my decision to follow God. I've made my decision to do the things that please him, not to follow the carnal yearnings and desires, not to follow the temptations of Satan from hell, but to serve God and to reject those things and to take a stand for God, that's your job to do that. That's the way you establish your dedication to him. So it's a part of his whole plan to have a tempter here and for you to resist those temptations. He lies, he cheats, he deceives. He sl- what kind of power does he have? It's very simple. Just think about this. He's already been defeated at Calvary. He's been cast out of heaven by virtue of the resurrection. And the only things he has to battle against you, the only tools he has are tools of deception and opposition against the saints. That's all he's got. He will deceive you and he will oppose you. That's all he's got. But he uses those tools and all the tools he has are a part of of that. How many of you have watched enough news to see the activities of a group that calls themselves Antifa, anti-fascists? How many of you have seen this group that they wear the masks so they can't be recognized and they, they slander and they oppose and they are violent? How many have seen that? Well, see, that, that kind of gives you an idea of how Satan and his minions work They were the original Antifa. They are cowards, Satan and his minions. They will harass. They will oppose. They will deceive. That's the way Satan works. He's come, the evil schemes of Satan, to consume and destroy and He is working with his tools to deceive and oppose you in everything you do. Now, the opposition you can feel. There is no question when you're being opposed by the powers of hell. But the deception's the tricky part. What really concerns me when I see Christians who are deceived. And how do you help them? How do you help the deceived to see through those things? That's all from the power of hell. But there is an effective shield of protection against the works of the enemy. Those who are devoted to God will never lose the war in these spiritual battles. You'll never lose the war. God wins that for you. Just like it started off at the very beginning of the conflict. The serpent, it, there was a prophecy there. It said, okay, now you've done it. 
you yielded to the serpent, you failed in the garden, and God described it like this. From now on, here's the way it's going to go. He's going to bite your heel. And you know what that means? Getting your heel bit, that means that's harassment. That means that's inconvenience. That means that's, that's inflicting some, uh, some, some pain you, you don't want. Getting your heel. We get heel bites all the time from the enemy. But the good news is that God said, but the antidote to that is, I'm going to send somebody who has the power to crash, to crush his head. So you see, Christ has defeated the enemy. The only thing he's got left now is smoke and mirrors. He wants to deceive you. He wants to discourage you. And the best thing that he can hope for is to get you mentally, psychologically to the, to the point where you just say, all right, I'm tired, I'm weary, I surrender, I give up. And Satan says, yes, now I've got him. Because if you continue to fight and you continue to live devoted to God, you will not lose the war. Amen. And Satan knows that. Amen. His bites are annoyances. He persecutes. He's cast, had people cast into prison. That's a heel bite. That's all that is. He torments. He slanders. There's nothing but annoyances. There's just heel bites. Those things do not defeat you. Many of our struggles and trials are just harassment by this vengeful serpent. Life is full of struggles and battles brought to us courtesy of Satan. And the Bible says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. And the third thing is, they just didn't fear death. If the gospel that is being preached today does not motivate people to storm the gates of hell and rescue the lost, we, friends, are preaching a worthless gospel. If the gospel is pre that is being preached today is nothing more than unlocking some secret formulas in Scripture to help you have your happiest life today, that has nothing to do with storming the gates of hell and winning the lost. That is a worthless gospel. We must be preaching a gospel that inspires people the way we do spiritual warfare is by winning the lost. If we fail to produce a generation of believers who have no interest in hazarding their lives to take the gospel to the darkest corners of the world, we will have by that time lost our focus and abandoned the Great Commission. I just sat in my office a few weeks ago with a young couple from Des Moines that they're getting ready to go down to India to a part <clears throat> that is, for the most part, totally unevangelized. Just, uh, just a young couple. And for, for me, it is astounding to see God still laying the burden of the salvation of the lost on young people who are willing to give up a career and the comforts of living in the United States of America 
and live on on uh, contributions, however sparse they may be, to go into a foreign land to try and make inroads, social inroads and friends with the local people to introduce them to Jesus Christ where they have never heard of him before. Young people taking up that challenge, taking up that mantle. And I, it just makes me so proud it's still happening. But we cannot, we cannot produce a generation that has lost the passion for souls. It's one thing to preach you ought to live a Christian life and we, and we graduate young people from West Side and they, and they go to college and they get a career and they plug back into church, but we're just going to be ingrown until we start getting young people that come in here and say, I have a passion and a fire burning in my heart that I don't, I'm, that's not for four years of college. It's not for a $70,000 a year job, but it's a passion to move to some dark corner of the world and take the gospel to somebody who's never heard it before. That's what the church is all about. God needs an army of fearless believers who have a passion to share the good news without fear to all who are lost. And I'm not trying to make it sound like you have to go to a foreign country to be a missionary. But if you don't have a passion for lost souls, you can look, you can work right there next to your co-worker for all of your career and never once take the opportunity to ask them if they know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior because you don't have a passion for lost souls. Because you don't lose any sleep at night wondering if that person you work with will even go to a devil's hell when they die. Where's your passion for souls? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. That's what Jesus did. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. That's evangelism. And they overcame him by having no fear for the personal cost of sharing the gospel with somebody. Now, I wonder how many of us here today are paralyzed trying to share your faith with your coworker because every time you try, you just get so scared. And the Bible says here that these are people that had committed themselves to the point where they said, I don't fear for my life. I don't care what they do to me. If they laugh at me, that's the least of my worries. If they don't want to be my friend anymore, that's the least of my worries. I don't care if they try to kill me. That's the attitude of these people because they realize in spiritual warfare, it's all about winning souls and no fear for the cost of doing so. Bow your heads. Now I want to make missionaries out of all of you this morning. I want God to put lost souls on your heart. You've got a neighbor that is on a freight train to hell right now. Do you have a burden for them? You've got a coworker that you know as much as any earthly man could know. They do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. You can tell by the way they act and talk. Does it bother you? Are you concerned about lost souls around you? Some of the young people, you have classmates that you know do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Do you care? You've got family. 
keep saying, Lord, send somebody to take the gospel to them. Well, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm afraid how they might react. No fear. Of course you have to have some wisdom. Of course you